Well, good morning. My high school choir sang that song at every Christmas concert that we did. They would invite all of the alum to come forward and to sing with us. It was such a fond memory that I have, and I'll probably remember those lyrics until I die. The lyrics are singing for us the names or titles of Jesus that come from Isaiah 9, 6. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. A name can say a lot about a person, right? I mean, parents spend a long time choosing what they want to name their children. And I'm married to a teacher. I know there's a lot of teachers in the room today. For a teacher, it's especially hard because one child can ruin a name forever. I mean, you get a bratty Amy or a disrespectful John or an unruly Arthur, and the name is just ruined. <laughs> well, my son Porter, his teacher this year, had a baby over the summer. And we heard that over last year, she was asking around about Porter, trying to figure out whether she would regret naming her baby Porter. She did go ahead and name her baby Porter, which is encouraging to us as parents, but the jury's still out whether or not she'll regret it. There's still a lot of school year left to go. Last year, John shared about how Jesus is our wonderful counselor. It's a beautiful name for Jesus. Today, we are going to look at how Jesus is our mighty God. Now, when you think about someone who is really mighty or powerful, who do you think of? Here's a few that I thought of. Let's look at them together. All right, who's this guy right here? Godzilla. I heard a few in the room. For some reason, my son Porter loves this movie. All right, who's this green guy here? Hulk, yes. This one? Optimus Prime. All right, I learned that one from my husband. And what about this guy right here with the hammer? Thor. Okay, and who's this one? Everybody knows this one, right? Superman. Okay, great job. Now, I want to hear your opinion. Which of these is the most powerful or mighty? We're going to take a vote. Ready? I'll go through them again. Raise your hand if you think that one is the most powerful. Who thinks Godzilla is the most powerful in the room? Okay, a few. What about Hulk? Okay. Got at least one. Optimus Prime? Nobody. Okay. Thor? All right. I thought this might happen. What about Superman? Okay. Overwhelming favorite. It was the same way on our church staff, by the way. All right. Thanks for playing. What if I compare these guys, though, to this? Is this your picture of powerful and mighty? We're going to explore today what it means for Jesus to be mighty God. But we're going to look at an early Christian hymn that's found in the book of Philippians uh, that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. So please open your Bibles to Philippians 2. I'm sorry we printed the wrong scripture reference at the top of your sheet. So it's Philippians 2, and listen as I read verses 5 through 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
May God bless the reading of this word. Now, John said I should just read the scripture twice and sit down, but I'm sorry, there's more to come. But isn't that a beautiful passage? (laughs) Well, today, when we think of somebody who's really powerful and mighty, we might think of those characters that I named earlier, or we might think of someone like Taylor Swift or Jeff Bezos or even The Rock. But 2,000 years ago, when people thought of a really powerful and influential leader, the vote would have been nearly unanimous for Alexander the Great. He was born 350 years before Jesus, and he succeeded his father Philip to the throne of Macedonia. He quickly took over the rest of Greece. By age 20, he had a plan to take over the rest of the world, beginning with the Persian Empire, which was the largest empire of its time. And although he died quite young at age 32, he had been so successful that some people thought that he was divine, in part because he himself had suggested this. So in Paul's day, 350 years later, or 400 years later maybe, the emperor Augustus seemed to be on the same track of success. Augustus had put an end to the long-running Roman civil war, and he had brought peace to the whole known world at the time. And soon, many of his followers began to claim that he, too, was divine. So his military power, his leadership skills to hold an empire together seemed to prove it. And this is what rulers at their time were trying to copy. This was the model of powerful and mighty leadership when Philippians was written. Now, these leaders had such obvious power and influence that people assumed they were gods. And maybe that's a little bit nice, right? That you can be so famous, so powerful, so influential that people were in awe of you. But Jesus was different. He was God. And as God, he was truly the most powerful person to ever walk the face of the earth. But his power might look nothing like Alexander the Great or Augustus the Emperor. In fact, quite often, God's power looks weak by human standards. God's, sorry, God's plans look weak by human standards. How can a baby who's born in humble surroundings and later die on a cross much be mighty, right? And much less a mighty God. So today we're going to look at the trajectory of Jesus' career. For most powerful leaders, if you're going to trace the tra- trajectory of their career, that's a hard word to say, by the way, trajectory. There we go, trajectory of their careers. For most leaders, that's going to be a line that goes steeply up and to the right, probably followed by a pretty precipitous drop at the end. Uh, For Jesus, though, his looks more like a parabola. I'm sorry, I'm nerding out on you today. Does anyone remember what a parabola is? Yes, it's like this. It's a U-shaped curve, like a banana or a rainbow or a roller coaster. All right, so at the beginning, we see Jesus existing in the form of God. Now, some people think of Jesus' beginning as being with the birth of a baby in a manger. But Jesus existed long before that. Jesus' story doesn't start in a manger. Since the beginning of time, when God created the universe, Jesus was there. Long before there were humans or dinosaurs or even the sun, moon, and stars, Jesus was mighty God. So you have a parabola in your note sheet, and you can label that first part right up here at the top, mighty God. God. All right, Jesus was there when the world was created. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. 
Nothing is too hard for you. Jesus was there. What does this mean for Jesus as mighty God? We can say, Jesus, illness is not too hard for you. Broken relationships are not too hard for you. Losing a job is not too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for you, Jesus. Jesus is mighty. Now let's take a look at how verse 6 describes it. Being in very nature God. Jesus did not consider equality with, something, uh, equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now this verse is ta- telling us what Jesus was like before the incarnation. In his very nature, he was God. 100% through and through, to the very core of his being, Jesus was God. He wasn't part of God's creation. He was no divine afterthought. Jesus didn't suddenly come into existence when he was born in a manger. Jesus has always existed. Now, in the Christian faith, we talk about God as one God in three persons. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, how that all works out is one of the great Christian mysteries and probably a sermon for another day that I hope they assign to somebody else because it's tricky. Um, But uh, we, we know that Jesus was equal to God. It's been that way forever and ever. God together as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has no beginning or no end. So Jesus was God, which also meant that Jesus was equal to God. The equality with God. Jesus is equal to God. Sometimes we describe God using the three omnis, right? Three words that begin with omni. Jesus was omniscient. That means that Jesus knows everything. He is omnipotent. That means he is all-powerful. And he is omnipresent. That means he is everywhere. Those words describe God the Father. They also describe Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit. So as God, Jesus has all three of these qualities. Now, I'm really curious how this played out when Jesus was a boy growing up, right? When Jesus was seven years old, did he know that he was God? Would he have aced every test in school? As my daughter pointed out last night, he created the teacher. And so I think he knows everything she knows. Would he have tried to show off at all or maybe like downplay his abilities just to fit in? It's really interesting to think about, right? There's this movie called The Incredibles that I love. It's this superhero family who's trying to live normally and fit in and conceal their identity. Their son, Dash, has incredible speed, and he's trying to figure out what to do with it on the school track team. Let's watch this video really quickly. Maybe that's what Jesus' childhood was like, right? He's divine, but he's also human. All right, we really don't know what his childhood was like much, at least in that regard. But verse 6 does tell us that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. The Greek word that this phrase is translating, uh, used to his own advantage, it can mean robbery or plundering or something to be grasped or gripped. Jesus didn't try to cling to his equal status with God. He wasn't afraid of losing it, nor did he see it as a prize to be displayed. 
He didn't try to exploit it for his own advantage. Now think on the other hand about Adam, the first human that was created. Adam grasps at the forbidden fruit to be like God. And Adam represents all of us who have come after. All of us have this natural tendency towards selfishness. In fact, I was talking this week with one of our young couples who uh, we sent to preview a marriage conference for us. And they were telling me that the speaker had every couple look into the eyes of their partner. And if you think it's about to get cheesy and sappy, don't worry, it's not. They looked into the eyes of their partners and the speaker said, right now, you are looking at the second most selfish person in your marriage. (laughs) It's so true. But you don't have to be married to know that, right? All of us know that we have this tendency toward selfishness. We want to grasp at things that will give us security or power or prestige or influence. But as we've already pointed out, Jesus is different. He's mighty, but he doesn't use it to his own advantage. So as we consider Jesus as mighty God, the next question we might ask is, how does a mighty God rule? Jesus didn't use his high and mighty position as an opportunity to look down upon the rest of God's creation simply to manipulate or to condemn. And church, by the way, that means we should not either. But instead, Jesus renounced what was his by right and by reality and instead chose the way of obedient suffering. Now, this is where the trajectory of Jesus' career is about to go down, right? If it's a roller coaster, we're right at the tipping point as gravity is about to plummet us downward. Look with me at verse 7. It says, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now, when it says Jesus made himself nothing, this word literally means to pour out or to empty Now, let's be clear. Jesus is not emptying himself of his divinity. He didn't empty out his divine nature in order to be human, later come back and pick it up again to be God again. Even as Jesus was born as a baby in a manger, Jesus retained his equality with God. He retained his divinity. So what did Jesus pour out? Well, he limited his glory in order to take the form of a human. He kept his glory concealed or hidden for a time. He didn't use it to his own advantage. I like what one of the commentaries I read said about this. We tend to ask the wrong question. And the question should not be, uh, of what did Jesus empty himself? The question we should ask would be, into what did he empty himself? Now, Jesus, mighty God, could have come to earth as a great ruler, maybe a part of the emperor's household, and quickly risen to power. He could be like, Aladdin, where he suddenly rides into town with all the splendor and a parade of animals and dancers and singing to announce his arrival. But instead, Jesus enters the world as a baby, and not a baby aristocrat, but poor and homeless and vulnerable. Now, as the message paraphrase says in John 1:14, Jesus became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. This is why at Christmas we refer to Jesus as our Emmanuel, which means our God with us. I like how the late pastor Warren Wearsby put it. He said, what a paradox that a babe in a manger should be called mighty. Yet even as a baby, Jesus Christ revealed power. His birth affected the heavens such that a star appeared. The star affected the magi, the wise men. They left their homes and they traveled, made that long journey to Jerusalem. 
Their announcement shook King Herod and his court. And Jesus' birth brought angels from heaven and lowly shepherds from the fields and, uh, on the, to uh, come and to worship. And then midnight became like midday as the glory of the Lord appeared to people. So even as a baby, Jesus was mighty God. Now earlier we asked the question, how does a mighty God rule? If you look back down at your parabola on your notes, we uh, have now swept our way downward from the highest heights to the lowest low. And remember, this is not a failure or a crash on Jesus' part. This is a self-limitation of Jesus' power and might. So the first thing we see in verse 8 is that our mighty God Jesus rules by selfless humility. In the blanks on the left side of the bottom of your parabola, write the words selfless humility right here. Jesus humbled himself. In Jesus' time, humility was not a desirable trait. To lower yourself before equals or even someone lesser was just unthinkable at the time. But Jesus' humility was not based on his status. It was based on the fact that he limited himself for our sake. Jesus limited himself in order to show us how to live as humans. He limited himself in order to show us how to have a relationship with God. Jesus limited himself in order to demonstrate God's power over sin and over death. And Jesus did all of that for us. It was a selfless humility. Now, church, I saw selfless humility in action yesterday and over the last two weeks as you all served so selflessly and so humbly at the Christmas store. You reflected Jesus in a way that was beautiful. And thank you. Now, verse 8 goes on to tell us that Jesus was obedient unto death. Now, what does that mean? Well, as God, Jesus was immortal. He was not subject to death like we human mortals are. But in becoming Jesus, uh, sorry, in yes, in becoming human, Jesus limited his power over death. In fact, remember how we said earlier that Jesus had poured himself out. The prophet Isaiah had predicted uh, that the Savior would pour out his life unto death. Jesus willingly gave it. So now we have the second answer to our question. How does a mighty God rule? He rules by self selfless humility. But then also, as you look at your parabola on the note, she would move through the bottom of the curve over to this side. Write the words sacrificial love. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Out of his great love, Jesus sacrificed his own power over death in order to die in our place. And not just any death, but even death on a cross. Only a truly mighty God could take on the sins of the world and bear that burden for us. And only a loving God would choose to do that. And so this career trajectory of Jesus brought him through his lowest point in the way of sacrificial love as he gave his life on the cross for us. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of Jesus, this may seem like a really depressing end. But the story does not end there. Because elsewhere in Scripture, we're told that after three days, God resurrected Jesus. He brought him back to life. He appeared to his disciples and to many other people as proof of his resurrection. Jesus has triumphed over sin and death. Isn't that wonderful news? And so the next question we might ask is, what is Jesus' place now? We've seen Jesus as mighty God at the beginning of the time. 
We've seen Jesus take the path of selfless humility and sacrificial love as he entered our world, took on the form of a human, and gave his life for us on the cross. But what happened with Jesus' career trajectory after that? For the answer, let's look at verses 9 through 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now do you shift a, a sense, a little bit of a shift in the action here? Up until now, all of the verses have been pointed towards Jesus. But here, the main focal point of these verses is on God the Father. God exalted Jesus to the highest place. Now this is the only time where uh, in Paul's writings, or even in any other New Testament writings, where they use this exact phrase. They use the word exalt lots of times, but this one, the Greek, is more like a hyper-exalt. It's like the highest, 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 highest place, right? And so this means to raise Jesus to the highest place of honor. Jesus is king of kings. He's seated on the throne. The train of his robe fills the room. Angels adore him. So we've seen Jesus at his lowest low when he was crucified, just like a common slave or criminal, and now we follow the trajectory of a parabola back upward as the resurrected Jesus is super exalted by God. This is kind of one of those thin places that we talked about in Scripture a few weeks ago where we kind of pull back the veil on our physical reality and God shows us a glimpse of the spiritual reality behind it. Right in front of the disciples and all the other witnesses, the book of Acts tells us that Jesus was visibly taken up and disappeared in a cloud. He was exalted to the highest place of honor. And in fact, right in front of the disciples, uh, the, the disciples sat there and the angel said to them, why do you just stand there looking up at the sky? It gives us this sense of awe, doesn't it? And then look at the second half of uh, the verse, it says, what, uh, the name that the Father has given to God. What is this name that we're talking about? Well, if you look down at verse 10, it might suggest that it's the name Jesus, but we know that that's the name that Jesus has had since birth. He's had it throughout his whole ministry career. And in fact, Jesus was a fairly common name for Jewish boys at the time. So it's not the name Jesus that he's looking at. The name that was given to Jesus by God the Father at this point, it's it was, it, when he was ascended to heaven and he was exalted by God the Father, is the title of Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Now there's a little irony in the fact that the very one who set aside his status and privilege in order to take on the humble nature of a servant is now given the supreme honor of being exalted and called Lord. His true equality with God has been revealed once and for all. And in response, on the day when Jesus is manifested in all of his glory, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. Now friends, normally in a sermon, when we mine the deep truths of, mine the deep truths of Scripture, our hope is to bring everyone in the room to some point of personal application, right? Some way that the Scripture brings us to serve or to become more like Jesus. But in this sermon we would consider it a smashing success if all we sit back and do is look at our mighty God and say, wow. Right? We sit in awe of our mighty God, Jesus. 
So I want us to take a moment to appreciate the mightiness of our God. Just like those men who sat there gaping up into the sky when Jesus ascended, right? And then I want us to consider what does it mean for us that Jesus is our mighty God? I mean, the fact that Jesus was with God before the incarnation, the fact that Jesus was with God before the beginning of time and is still with God today, the fact that Jesus is currently seated on the throne and reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. Well, it means that before we ever drew our first breath, before mom and dad even knew each other, Jesus knew us by name. It means that we can trust a God who knows our weakness and possesses incomparable strength. He's mightier than Thor or Superman. He's more influential than Taylor Swift. Jesus is our mighty God. And in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul talks about Jesus' incomparably great power for us who believe. Friends, there is nothing you are facing that has ultimate power over you. Whatever you are facing, Jesus is mightier. A.W. Tozer said it this way, anything that God has ever done, he can do now. Anything that God has ever done anywhere, he can do here. Anything that God has ever done for anyone, he can do for you. I want to close with a story. Many years ago, George McCausland was serving as the director of a YMCA in western Pennsylvania. And it wasn't going well. It was a difficult situation because the YMCA was losing members and money and staff. And George was working around the clock to try to fix the situation. He worked 85 hours a week. He poured himself into every problem. But it was really weighing on him heavily. Even when he was away from the job, he was worrying and fretting about everything that had to be done. Well, a therapist warned that he was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. She told George, you have to find a way to let go and let God take charge of your problems. But he had no idea how to do it. Well, the break breakthrough came one day when he took a notebook and a pen and he ventured into a forest that was not far from his home. Even as he just began to walk through the woods, he felt his breathing steady and he could feel his muscles starting to relax. Sitting down under a tree, he took some deep breaths and he began to feel at ease for the first time in months. Well, taking up his notebook and pen, he wrote a simple letter to God that said, Dear God, today I resign as general manager of the universe. Love, George. And later, as he was telling the story with a twinkle in his eye, he said, And wonder of wonders, God accepted my resignation. Friends, we are not the general manager of the universe. We have a mighty God who holds all things in his hand. Let's pray together. We are so grateful, Jesus, that we can claim you as our mighty God. We are grateful that there is nothing that we can face that holds the ultimate power because you hold the ultimate power and the ultimate victory over everything. Lord, help us to trust you in every situation with every challenge and every difficulty we face. May we be like George, and may we resign as manager of the universe. May we give it all to you and let you be the ruler of our lives. We're so grateful that you came to earth to show us how to live, to show us your selfless humility and your sacrificial love for us.
and then that you gave your life for us as the ultimate sacrifice is all. Lord, we're grateful that today you reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. And so as we go about our week this week, help us to trust you and to give it all to you. It's in the powerful and mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.